0: Maybe you read in the news that the 36-year-old Prime Minister of Finland, Sanna Marin, uh, this is the woman who led her nation recently to joining NATO as Russia invaded the Ukraine. Uh, she was embarrassed when a private video of her provocatively dancing wildly and singing and drinking at a private party was leaked to the media. And the prime minister explained that what she was doing uh, was just what people her age do. Uh, And she added, it was my free time. Uh, She explained that she had no government meetings at the time and and she even very willingly subjected herself to a drug test, which did come back negative. She also explained later on, very tearfully, that these are dark days and partying is needed. That's what she said. Well, as a result of her interviews and her tearful explanation, various solidarity dancing videos have come online. Uh, Media trying to support the prime minister saying, hey, listen, you dance and so do we. And they try to imitate her dancing. And all this came out as even, um, let's say, more revealing pictures came out of some influencers in the prime minister's palace. Um, These pictures being published as well, very even more so embarrassing for the prime minister. Um, Well, in the defense of his nation, an author by the name of Roman Schatz writes the following, and I'm really not interested in what the Prime Minister did. I'm interested in what this man has to say and how it it applies to us. This is what he wrote. In the space of one generation, Finland has changed from a joyless, buttoned-up Protestant society into something very modern and digital. And then he points out that dancing was illegal in Finland during World War II, He writes, Santa Marin is part of the New Finland. We're seeing the birthing pains of Finland 3.0. And as the briefing points out, uh, this New Finland 3.0 is referring to a Finland that is now secular. It's described as a greater, better Finland, a post-Christian Finland, And if the secular Finland is 3.0, what is Finland 2.0? Well, Finland 2.0 was a Christianized Finland, a lower-grade Finland, a buttoned-up, prudish Finland, a joyless Finland. Then what's Finland 1.0? Finland 1.0 is Finland prior to being exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I find that extremely important, uh, very telling, as we consider how people think of Christianity. I think this author is saying more than what we first realize at a casual reading. Not only is this author pointing to the direction that Western civilization is very much bound on, but he also is explaining why so many people avoid Jesus Christ until they absolutely, absolutely have to turn to him. People who say, well, you know, one day I'll come to Christ when I'm older, like you. But right now I'm young, I want to enjoy myself. Why is it that churches sit virtually empty week after week after week? Oh, there are some big churches, yes. But the vast majority of churches around this country are very similar to ours here. Why is it that churches that are attended are so full of people who are not truly loyal? I'd like to think we are the exception. People who lack sacrificial, self giving faith. What is it that most people think about Christianity? Many people think it's simply not fun, it's boring. It's joyless. It's grim. Christianity has no pleasure, and it's downright dismal. And so we're hoping for my life next year to be 3.0. A less Christianized version of what I have today. Well, I'm going to do something a little different this morning. Instead of jumping right into the text, what I want to do is ask you the question, is Christianity worth fighting for? And I think you know what I'm going to say, right? But let me try to prove to you that Christianity is indeed worth fighting for. And so what I'm going to do is make a list for you of things that we tend to fight for. Some good, some not so good, some not good at all. Things we fight for, things we strive for in life. Sometimes it's things we have to strive for. Sometimes it's things we just simply want to strive for. And then I'm going to go back and see what the scriptures say in Paul's letter, first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 12. So let me give you a list of things we, we fight for. I'm warning you now. It's a lengthy list. I'm, I try to abbreviate it as much as I possibly can. I'll try to be quick. All right. uh, there's a place for you to take notes in your worship bulletin. If you so desire, here's the first thing we fight for we fight for survival, don't we? We fight to survive. I think it's the most common fight I have listed here. We naturally engage in this fight to survive. Poverty stricken communities are filled with people just striving, struggling, fighting to survive. Hospitals are filled with people struggling to survive. But it's not just them. Even us from day to day, trying to make ends meet, trying to stay, uh, keep our heads above the water, just trying to survive. Uh, We approach it with the eye of a tiger. We do have an innate understanding that we are created to live. And so what do we do? We fight to keep on living. We fight to survive. Here's a second one, and it's very much in tune with the first one a fight for health a fight for health not only do we fight to live on but we fight to live well we don't want to just be alive we want to be alive and well so it's not just uh, the quantity of life but also the quality of life in fact in many people's minds quality is more important than quantity and so what do we do? we fight for health Uh, We visit our primary care physician. We um, have regular checkups. We go to the dentist and make sure that things are in order in our mouths. I was at the dentist not too long ago, and the hygienist was cleaning my teeth. And she said to me, how often do you floss? She wasn't really asking. She was making a statement. And I thought I'd be funny, and I said, "I, I, I floss religiously. Every Christmas and Easter. She did not think it was funny. We have regular checkups. We carefully take our medication. We spend extraordinary amounts of money on health care products and health insurance because we strive for health, the quality of life. We also fight for wealth, for wealth. Um, I think this is a fight very common in the United States of America because you can actually have it here. There are certain parts of the world where they really don't fight for wealth because they know it's impossible. But here it is actually possible to have wealth. I think of all the the, the fights I have here, it's probably the most alluring fight for the common man. The fight for wealth. It's not only a fight for more, it's a fight for prosperity, for plenty. It's a fight for abundance. Lavished amounts is what we want. It's a fight for a poverty-destroying prosperity. We strive for wealth. And we do so in order not only to guarantee our future, not only to guarantee that when we grow old we'll be comfortable, but rather it's very much a, a, a fight for pleasure today. We want to be wealthy so that we can enjoy today, so that we can enjoy tomorrow, not just the future. And for many people, victory in gaining wealth has become their greatest defeat. Have you ever known a millionaire? I have a few. And I thank the Lord I'm not a millionaire. I really do. I don't want to be poor. But I thank the Lord I'm not a millionaire. Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote that he has seen, or better yet, I'll quote, where I have known one man to fall through poverty, I have known 50 men to fail through riches. It's very true. The blessings of God can become deep trials when it comes to wealth, when it comes to money. Along the same lines as the fight for materialism. The two, wealth and materialism, are like a tag team wrestling duo. They jump in the ring together because when you have a desire for materialism, wealth allows you to actually gain what it is you want. And many people fight for stuff. They fight wholeheartedly for things. Um, We fill our pockets with things. We, We line our walls with things. We fill our homes with things. And when things in our homes are too many, we stick them in the attic or, of course, in the basement. Now we, of course, rent we 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 rent these little cubicles so that we could stick our stuff in there because we want stuff we like stuff the more stuff the happier we tend to think we're going to be materialism prizes personal comfort personal comfort which they believe possessions are going to bring and it's true you know stuff does make life more comfortable right it really does however it seldom if ever lasts very long stuff even may give us status people become envious of us when they see what we have and for some reason we like that isn't that odd that i would be glad that you are envious of me that's human nature stuff tends to buy us that privilege if you want to call it a privilege but as you well know as you have filled your pockets in your homes you know very well that the stuff does not last in terms of satisfaction it's a very shallow, very hollow short lived satisfaction And what a lot of people do is they say well then I have to get more and so they get more, only to discover that that, too, lasts very, very little. You know, my, one of my brothers uh, used to drive around with Bruce Springsteen in his pink Cadillac. He actually had one. And he would come home on different occasions and say, guess where I was? I was uh, driving around in pink Cadillac with Bruce. He was his physical fitness trainer. But what I found interesting is that my brother would also report that they would always have to get a jump start on a pink Cadillac. They would have to turn the key, it wouldn't start. They would have ask people, excuse me, but can you give me a jump start? <laughs> That's the reality of materialism. It's shallow. It lasts little. It means nothing. And yet it does bring some degree of comfort. But please do not put your faith in your material possessions. Here's a big one since 2020 the fight for social equity. It has become a very popular fight. And honestly, I think it's a worthwhile fight if we fight it properly. If we fight it properly. I think we would all agree that fairness is something we would want extended to us and to others, right? And that's what equity means. Equity means fairness. I know it has been a word that has been taken to mean something more or less than that. But really, the the term itself is a good word. It means to be fair, and we want to be fair. We want people to be fair to us, and certainly as Christians, we want to be fair to them. It's a biblical principle. Malachi chapter 6, verse 8, it reads this way And what does the Lord require of you? This is what he requires to act justly. That's equity. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, to treat people properly. And when they have less than you, be merciful. And be humble before the eyes of God. It's a biblical principle. But look, we cannot fight this fight for social equity simply by carrying placards and protesting. Never should it be fought with riots, with fire and looting. No. Never. If you want to fight this fight for social equity, it has to be fought in the crucible of your personal practices. In other words, fairness is not about what you think about other people. Fairness is about how you treat and live alongside of other people. I don't care what you think. How are you treating them? Are you being fair? Are you being just? Notice here Malachi 6.8 does not say think justly to those who have less. No, it says be just, be fair, be merciful. So away with the placards, away with the protests, and begin to live a just, equitable life towards others. You know, to invoke justice, rather to, to invoke injustice in order to gain justice or to invoke inequity in order to win equity is just downright insincere and nothing more than vengeful. You cannot attain equity by teaching hate. Here's another fight that's very common to us. It's the fight for pleasure. The fight for pleasure, otherwise known as hedonism. That's what the prime minister of Finland was doing. She she vowed, in fact, that she would continue to live the way she was filmed living. And she said to the nation, "I hope you will accept me the way I am." Now she is certainly being being true to herself. Uh, but the images that that. Came to, to the screen simply and is surely do tarnish the image of the office and, of course, of the Prime Minister herself as being self indulgent, being reckless, immature, disrespectful, careless. But I do want you to understand something. When it comes to the scriptures, pleasure is good and pleasure is essential. It is good. It is essential. As Christians, I think that we need to foster a concept of Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism. A hedonism that stands against the excesses of this this world. A hedonism that does not delve into what is sinful. A sense of pleasure that sees what God has to offer and says, There I will be happy. Instead of the hedonism that the world demands, which does nothing but delve us into sin and, and into the cravings of the flesh. Uh, John Piper, of course, writes on this. He says, Christian hedonism is a vision of life based on the truth that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When is God most glorified by you? When you are most satisfied in him. And you will be satisfied in him when you begin to enjoy what he has offered to you. When you begin to see the beauty and the pleasure of what he's given to you, what he's offered to you. The idea here is that we would have boatloads of pleasure in this life without ever having to cross over into what is wrong or forbidden, what is sinful. Contrary to our modern day impression, the pilgrims were people who actually enjoyed Christian hedonism. They knew pleasure without having to step across the boundaries, trespassing into sin. I know, we always picture them as very being very buttoned up and prudish, right? All they wore was black and white and buckles on their shoes. That's hardly the case. This is the problem that Eve faced in the garden. When she was tempted, she had to decide, am I going to listen to God who said, this is where you're going to find pleasure, or am I going to listen to Lucifer who said, this is where you're going to find pleasure? Well, we know what she did. and this is the same choice we have on a daily basis as well where am I going to find my pleasure can we actually believe that the pleasure that God offers to us exceeds the pleasure that the world offers and our bodies crave here is the next fight we often delve ourselves into And that is the fight of work. Now, I know some of you fight to get to work. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those who live to work. They don't work to live. They simply love to work. And they have this great work ethic, which is a good thing. They define themselves by their work. Men are great at this, right? So tell me about yourself. What's the first thing that comes to the man's mind? You start talking about what you do. Well, I am in, right? And you explain your work. Never in the scriptures are we called to define ourselves by our work, but by our character, by the calling that God has given to us. You know, people who fight in this battle for work, not only define themselves by their work, but they seek to find fulfillment according to what they produce in their work they are doers they are hunters makers and they tend to frown on anyone who doesn't work like they do and listen work is good but keep in mind not to forget that work is not an end in of itself rather God calls on us to work yes to provide yes to produce but primarily he calls us to work as a means by which we will reflect him in this world God works, therefore we work. Do you realize we're going to work in heaven? The scriptures tell us that we are to bring glory to God by the work that we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. The fight for work. And then there is, of course, a fight for power. The libido dominandi, or the lust to dominate. It's a phrase that comes from Augustine's City of God. A lust to dominate, a fight for power. It was a philosopher, Nietzsche, who argued that a quest for power drives life. However, the Bible says quite the opposite. It says that a quest for power, a lust to dominate, destroys life. Often intertwined with this desire for power is also a a, a fight for fame, a a fight for good fortune. It's not always the case, but often the case. But I want you to see here that a fight for power is purely self-serving. It wants to control it wants to control what comes my way, it wants to control what goes your way. It wants to control how you behave. You know, when, when you have when you have a, a, a lust for power, you shudder at the idea of having to submit. Submission is very difficult for anybody who wants to be powerful. The lust for power is all about an inward curve, an arrow that comes out this way and then comes right back to myself. It's all about me, about my power. How are you going to serve me? And it's diametrically opposed to the biblical standards of serving others and loving others. Nowhere in the scriptures does God commend this lust for power. And what I find interesting though, is that though All of us do not appreciate that in other people. We often allow it to be this quiet whisper that hides itself in our own hearts looking for an opportunity to come out and express itself, become powerful. I don't like it when I see it in you, but somehow it's okay when it's in me. That's human nature, yet again, human sinful nature. Then, of course, there is the power for knowledge, the power, rather, the fight for knowledge. And we all would all agree that education is important, an attitude of constant learning is extremely important in every stage of life no matter how young or old you are it is a wonderful thing it is important because there's so much in this world that God has created that we still do not know and it's also important because this world is constantly changing and as the world changes if we want to keep up we have to keep learning You know, when I finally learned how to uh, program my VCR we replaced it with a DVD player (laughs) and today we say what's a DVD player? The world keeps changing. We have to keep up. The fight for knowledge is good, but it is good to the extent that it reveals more of God to you. It's not that all you can study is theology. Theology is the study of God. It's not that all you can do is study theology, it's that all that you study is theological, it's grounded in God. So that all knowledge should point you back to the creator, to God. Anything you learn should take you back to where it began. In the mind and the actions of God. Knowledge for the sake of knowledge can just make your head bigger. Or maybe allow you to have plenty of trivial conversation. But the ultimate value of knowledge is that you would know your creator... And enjoy him forever. So in your studies, whether you're talking about the sciences or philosophy or art, human uh, uh, history. According to 2 Peter 1. All your studies should open your eyes to the magnitude of God. The one who calls you to himself. and, and, And your studies should then give you a longing To be in his presence, a longing for eternity, where you will know him far better. Second Peter one five reads this way for this very reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge. This is how grace and peace will be multiplied to us according to Second Peter one. It's how we receive power for life and godliness. And along with knowledge comes the fight for discovery, or the fight for science. Some people have a thirst for discovery. Maybe that's you. Some people are in a constant quest to discover and see, longing to understand, or simply remove the mystery behind anything that can be learned. I mention this only because there seems to be a confusion these days, Keep this in mind. Science is subject to truth. Truth is not subject to science. Science seeks to discover and interpret truth. Therefore, your scientific learning should take you to the creator of truth, God. If your science is taking you away from God, beware. It's not truthful science. Keep in mind that the Bible and science do not contradict each other. It was George Washington Carver, a leading scientist in his time, by the way, a leading black scientist in his time, and I mention that because there were so few during his age, And not only was he a leading black scientist, he was a devout Christian scientist. And this is what he said. I love to think of nature as an unlimited broadcasting station through which God speaks to us every hour if we will only tune in. He goes on, without God to draw aside the curtain, I would be helpless. His understanding of the world around him as he studied... As he learned, scientifically, revealed more and more of God to him. And here is another one, another fight. Um, it's the last one I'll mention before I get to the text. That was pretty quick, right? <laughs> Here's a big one now, OK? The fight for patriotism. The patriotic fight. The ever-popular fight for our nation. What I find interesting is that no matter where you stand, whether you're blue, red, uh, progressive or conservative, you claim to be a patriot. The fight for patriots, hey, listen, it's a good fight. It's a necessary fight. Um, Our history as Americans is filled with people who fought this fight, and we have our liberties today because God used those people to win us our liberties But for those who are on the conservative side of things, which is, I think, many of us, if not all of us, this church tends to attract that. It's a good thing. We sometimes think that the purpose of the church is to make America great again. And it's not. At best, at best, it's the other way around. America exists in order that the church may flourish, so that the church may propel the grace of God around, throughout our borders and around the world. You see, America is here to serve the church, not the church to serve America. And America is just one way, just one way, and in the scope of history, a minute way in which God has used a nation, to broadcast his gospel, to save souls, and to build up a people for himself who will worship him. Yes, as Christians, we must be loyal citizens. It is through Christianity that this world has radically changed so that now Christian principles are in the air that we breathe. It is so common we don't even realize that these are Christian principles. Christianity, the principles of Christianity are so common, we don't even realize what the world was like before the Christian faith came about. With that, let me put a plug in for a book. The Air We Breathe. I recommend it to you. I'm just about done with it. It's by a fellow named Glenn Scrivener. My son was just working with him this past year in England. I would suggest a copy. Pick up a copy, read it. Christianity is in the air we breathe. And yes, as Christians, we are to be loyal citizens. We are to vote. We are to vote according to biblical principles. We are to care for our neighbors. We are to respect the law. We are even to pray for our leaders. But we are not called to make the church the state religion. It is not the church's duty to insist that we become the religion of the state. Look at the fiasco of the Russian Orthodox state church. Russia the Russian government rules over the state church. Whatever the church wants, or whatever the government wants, the church capitulates. Uh, consider the overall impact of the State Church of England. What impact? It virtually doesn't exist. It's the State Church. Uh, think back in time, not too far back, when, when there was a constant struggle between the church and the government. Who will have more power? Here's a problem. When you mix politics with science, you get politics. And when you mix politics with the church, you get politics. it is not our job to make America great again it is our job to proclaim the greatness of Christ yes it's true that a nation is blessed when it upholds God's moral standards the city of Nineveh certainly got the message government must be moral government must produce moral and just laws But it's wrong for us, it's dangerous for us to think that we can use the government to make Christians. The government will not make Christians. Or even to expect the government, which is made up vastly of unbelievers, to readily embrace the truth of God. Why would they? Why we have a hard time embracing the truth of God? Why would they? Christians do need to be Christ-like and we do need to act in terms of our voting in ways that will lead people to the truth of God we'll insist on principles from the word of God whether we're living in a Christianized nation or in a secular nation we need to be Christ-like But never think that the United States of America is the new Israel, that we are God's chosen people. We're not. Israel is God's chosen people. The church is God's chosen spiritual people. The United States has simply been an instrument for the cause of God. And we're not alone. And don't worry, the church is not going to die. God will continue to build this church worldwide. And neither should we think that there are two classes of Christians. That there's the upper class, or rather, two classes of citizens. There's the upper class of Christians and then the lower class of non Christians. It's true. Unbelievers will not be citizens of heaven. But the Constitution says that unbelievers are equal citizens of the United States of America. Let's not try to make this dichotomy that we're better and greater, we are equal citizens. We have a higher standard to live by, though. We should insist on it. But we're not going to make America Christian. Yes, there is a lack of cohesion in our nation. There is a lack of solidarity that threatens America today. And it's all primarily because of the two worldviews that exist. There is the historical Christian worldview against now the progressively growing secular view. But as Christians, my friends, we have to learn to navigate these choppy waters and still live by God's standards without compromise. And it's not easy. It is challenging. It is a fight. And we have to seek to be good citizens by teaching and living out the word of God. And thus we come together. It's one of the reasons we come together, so that we don't have to fight this fight by ourselves. We know that we're not alone. Of all these fights, I think most of them, if not all but one, are worthy of fighting. All but one. But when it comes to the priority, if we place any of these 11 as the priority, they automatically become misplaced goals. They they become wrongly ranked struggles. They automatically become excessive. Because they do not deliver. None of these goals will actually accomplish what your soul hoped for, at least not in a lasting way. Some of these are not even attainable. Certainly they're not rewarding. But there is one fight which is 100% guaranteed to be worthy. It's the fight in the Christian life, and it's the fight which God calls a Christian to be involved in. It's called the good fight. Take a look then in 1 Timothy 6:12. As I wrap things up this morning, take a look there in 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12. We started off by asking the question, is Christianity worth fighting for? Well, here we see that God refers to the fight for the Christian faith as being the good fight, the good fight. Not good simply in contrast to the bad or the worthless fight, but rather The good fight in the sense that it is the superior fight, the commendable, worthwhile fight. The good fight is a battle for the kingdom of God in you. It's not even speaking about the kingdom of God in this nation or around the world. It's talking about a fight for the kingdom of God to reign in your own heart, in your own soul. To extend, then, of course, its borders into your home, your family, and, of course, your church. It's a good fight because it has an excellent cause. The cause is this. It's the cause of God. It is a fight for everlasting truth. It's the good fight. We do not war against flesh and blood. In fact, we do not war even in the same way as we would against flesh and blood. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4 read this way. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. It's a fight that leads to eternal life. But it's also a fight that leads to a satisfied soul on this earth. Heaven is promised to those who fight their way to heaven. To those who fight against the world systems that pushes God aside. A world system that makes promises it cannot deliver. Promise to those who fight against temptation and obstacles. It's a fight that remains focused on the main event, Jesus Christ. Here's the verse, 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's a fight that leads to true life, eternal life. In fact, eternal life is the trophy that is given to you. It says here, take hold of the eternal life. When you stand in heaven, that will be your trophy. When you receive Jesus Christ, please understand this you enlisted in his army. Salvation is given to us freely. We cannot earn it, we do not deserve it. It is all by grace. But once we receive that grace, we are enlisted into the army of God. And here we are told to fight for his cause, to defend his truth, to thrust the church of Jesus Christ to victory and to bring glory to Christ, our commander. Revelation 3.11 reads this way. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown, your trophy. It is the good fight of the faith. Are you fighting that fight? Is it the priority in your life? There, there are many fights, and I had a short list, as long as it seemed. There are many other fights we can be engaged in. Sometimes we have to be. But what is the priority struggle in your life? Is it a fight for the good cause? Is it the good fight? It's a fight worth fighting because of the cause. It is the good fight of the faith. Jude 1.3 says, Content for the faith that was once for all delivered to you, by God to you. This is the golden chalice that we fight for. Not only that, but it, it's a fight worth fighting for because... It's the Christian's duty. It's the fight that all true believers are to be engaged in. That's what happens when we give our life to Christ. He enlists us into his army, and he says, now fight the good fight. That's our duty. That's our duty. It doesn't matter how many stripes you have on your shoulder. Fight the good fight. And it's a fight worth fighting for because of the outcome. It's a fight that leads to eternal life, eternal victory. It's a fight that leads to abundant life. That is to say, much life. Both here, as God blesses us, and of course, much life in eternity. It's worth the cause. So we fight. We fight on behalf of the faith, but we also draw on our faith in order to keep on fighting, in order to be sustained in the fight. So, is Christianity worth fighting for? Well, I would say that it's the only fight worth truly fighting for with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, as you can see here, that Christianity actually requires quite a bit from you, doesn't it? That faith in Christ is very demanding. It will cost you your all. But before you walk away afraid of giving your life to Christ because it will cost you all, keep this in mind. All those other fights will cost you everything as well. But here's the difference. In the fight for the things of God, you win victoriously. In the fight of the things of the world, you win nothing, even when you win. It's empty, it's shallow, it evaporates. So fight. Fight on, fight well. Fight hard. Fight the good fight. Pray with me. Our Lord and our God, we thank you because you are the one who enlists us and you are the one who sustains us. We pray, O God, then, that we will fight well and fight for your cause. In your name we pray. Amen.